0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we discuss computing, new technology, uh, the internet, shady CEOs, uh, all of the interesting stuff out there. Uh, Tonight on the show, uh, it is Simon Leo-Brown. Simon, how are you tonight?
2: I am very well. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm also pretty good. Um, Have you had a, a good week in technology in different... Um, bad, even?
2: Uh, uh, As I was just saying to you before, I have joined the dark side, as many uh, would have considered it, and have bought a Microsoft tablet. Um, It's my first non... Byron Scullin
1: will be rolling in his sound studio.
2: It's my first non-Mac in... A very long time, but I've been lured by the shininess of touch interfaces. Um,
1: can you give us a thirty-second review of, of your new Surface?
2: Uh, it is—it's uh, the Surface Pro Four, so it's not the new one, but they're cheaper now, um, and it's—it uh, uh, has worked pretty well. I—I I have to say the—the out-of-the-box experience wasn't. Quite up to the kind of Mac level of plug and play. There was a lot of we now cables need to update going everywhere windows, and, know, So not yeah. so many cables. There's a lot of lot of updating, mm. um, but now it, it it's settled in and uh, it's a joy to use. So
1: is that a stylus? I see there. So it I- is.
2: Well, I I cheaped out and I didn't. They charge extra for the keyboard, right. like. Yeah. Um, so, I cheaped out and did buy it. So, I've mm. been getting getting good at the stylus. And uh, this machine is the only known uh, being on earth that can read my handwriting. And not even I can read my handwriting. So, the fact that I can handwrite in is pretty, pretty good. That sounds pretty good to me. Um,
1: I'll be with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. Uh, While well the Australian workforce is made up of uh, 46% of women. They do represent just 20% of the digital tech workforce uh, in Australia, uh, well below the participation rate of women in other industries, which is to our collective shame. Uh, only 14% of digital technology graduates are females and 30% of women uh, in the field uh, leave within 10 or 15 years of service. So uh, it's pretty clear we do have uh, a lot of things to address. Um, one tech organisation which is taking positive steps to help their business be more Representative of the community is Invato. Uh, tonight, uh, in a few minutes, even, we speak with their uh, inaugural diversity and inclusion advisor, Abby Burgess. Um, If you are a nostalgic dude, like myself, and uh, indeed Rick Webb of TimeHop, you might enjoy the odd notification down memory lane. Uh, TimeHop was one of the first services, uh, probably in about 2010, 11, I think from memory, to resurface uh, our personal digital breadcrumbs uh, as a service, um, most commonly as a handy little app. Uh, We'll look at what nostalgia on the web is uh, today, uh, a little bit later, with Rick. But before we do do that, uh, there is some stuff making news, uh, some things that we wanted to have uh, a bit of a chat about. And um, where else would you be a better place to talk about technology than Melbourne, Simon? And, and why would that be?
2: Well, the city of Melbourne today released their startup action plan, which sounds very exciting. The SAP. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Um, now, uh, in announcing the Startup Action Plan, the Lord Mayor, Robert Doyle, uh, wasted uh, one sentence of his statement before getting on with having a dig at Sydney, saying new figures show that Melbourne CBD is now the co working capital of Australia with more co working office space than Sydney. And he notes that the driving force behind that is startups and that they are also a driver of job growth. So, city of Melbourne wants to help these companies uh, so they say so they've released um, this plan uh, the the plan includes working with startups to connect them with industry so that they commercialize they can commercialize intellectual property and mm. um, using Melbourne City Council's own international connections to help startups go global uh, working with the state government and developers to try and create affordable spaces for startups to base themselves in and um, Funding startups through small business grants, uh, linking them to training and mentoring programs, keeping on going with events like Melbourne Knowledge Week and Melbourne Conversations, uh, and this is interesting: making it easier for the City of Melbourne to engage startups as suppliers. So uh, they are, they say that they're innovating their procurement processes, uh, getting rid of some red tape to make it easier for startups to actually supply goods and services to the City of Melbourne. So, and they. Say that they are uh, going to begin advocating for other organisations to do the same thing. So that, in on the face of it, sounds pretty good because it's not—it's um, going beyond a kind of a few motherhood statements and a lot of what we're already doing. There's a little bit of that, but uh, to actually say we're going to give you business is probably exactly what startups want to hear. You know, mm. cash flow uh, is is important no matter how much, you know, capital you've got behind you. So mm. uh, to to actually say we're going to make it easier for you to sell stuff to us is probably one of, oh, and, you know, try and find places for you to be cheap, for you to stay cheap as well. But, yeah, they they would be welcome, I believe, to any business that was starting up in Melbourne.
1: I think um, it's kind of one of the pieces of the puzzle. Um, I remember we had um, Atlanta Daniels in not long ago talking about um, connecting startups to capital, uh, venture capitalists either in Australia or, or overseas. Um, and the other part of that is how to commercialize. So um, obviously um, city council is, is well connected at the big end of town mm. and um, they can um, grease the, the wheels of commerce um, as it were. So.
2: It it strikes me just through that that the uh, tender process is probably something which is ripe for disruption Mm. uh, and in a similar manner to, say, Uber Mm. um, or or Airbnb. Robbie could just sit out the front in those lovely flower
1: beds and um, take pictures on his lunch break.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: That'd be disruptive. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, another thing that uh, has been disruptive is the leadership at Uber. Um, If you've caught uh, any of the news today, uh, Uber's embattled CEO, Travis Kalanick, uh, is resigning from the ride-sharing company Uh, he helped found in 2009 following a quote-unquote shareholder revolt uh, led by some of Uber's most prominent investors. Um, uh, This has happened today. Um, Yeah, spokesperson has confirmed that uh, he has stepped down, uh, which currently leaves... um, uh, Uber without a CEO, COO, CFO, CMO, um, none of the C's, none of the O's. Um, effectively, the um, the Indians are kind of running the business. There's no chiefs.
2: Um. Um. I met they'll probably just get them all in as independent contractors, won't
1: they? Rehire them, yeah. Um, so this uh, there's been a series of kind of high-level um, uh, executive departures. Um, yeah, it's kind of been a, a scandal-plagued um, um, few months for them, um, and a lot of reports coming out similar to Amazon of toxic culture, um, uh, accusations, I guess, unique to Uber of um, sexual harassment, Although, um, sort of, um, I think Snap was it. Um, also, had a lot of that going on um, recently. Oh, sorry, no, I'm thinking of one of the. Um, uh, oh, OK Cupid had that as well. Um, yeah, so uh, 20 uh, employees have been fired, as well as the um, executive team uh, that have departed. Um, and investors have had enough. They're like, "You're out of here, buddy. Um, we need some good people running this company." And um, yeah, I, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a business in a great position and um, a lot of people rely on it. You know, it, it has quickly become the default way to get around in cities with terrible taxi services or public transport. So you'd like to see them pull through, I think.
2: Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of uh, competitors, well, we don't, I we, imagine.
1: We, we don't have the great competitors here. It's been really... Like, we've reported on a bunch of these on Bite Into It over the past few years, mm. but I, they don't seem to be taking hold in Melbourne in a big way.
2: I don't know if there's really... It might be a population thing. It yeah, might be, we're a small market. Yeah. yeah, and so I guess it's um, I, I guess it'd be interesting to see how whether any of those competitors really have the uh, the capacity to take advantage of the the trouble the missteps mm. within Uber because you know but they do all strike me as a lot there's much smaller companies.
1: I did take a really small ride sharing company down to uh, the last uh, community cup. Training, um, Adam Branson. If you are listening out there, your Camry is amazing, and um, perhaps you, you should commercialise that. <laughs> Take on Uber, I say, Adam. Um, one of the other big brands that's been um, uh, trying to um, outsmart uh, previous efforts is IBM. Um, they do love a super supercomputer. Yes, what's
2: and they have uh, they have declared that the IBM supercomputers will model the weather of the entire globe. Is
1: this like a, a real-time thing? You can just jump in and sort
2: of... It's for forecasting. So yeah. the idea is that uh, not only will it sort of model weather on a macro scale um, to sort of watch what the major events, the uh, impact major events have on the weather, but also uh, on a local scale, so the, the, the sort of changes that things like thunderstorms cause in the weather. The idea as far as I can grasp,
1: as far as I can tell, they've put a big set of chicken wire around the globe. It's a great visual. Yeah, there, there's
2: a, there's a really interesting graphic on Engadget where the um, where the story was reported today. The um, the so rather rather than regionally, rather than forecasting regionally, which uh, I understand is uh, the sort of more traditional way of doing things, the idea is that they're going to model the entire globe and then you can get very localised forecasts within that. So uh, you can say hi, hey, I'm, I'm here um, and what's the weather going to be like and using IBM's super computing power uh, it will check out what is happening in the entire global weather system to say yeah you might want to put a jacket on.
1: Interesting. Um, Are are you a a weather fan? Do you use um, like the native apps on your phone and stuff for that or do you kind of get your own solution? I still go to Bomb like every morning. That's the first thing I check when I...
2: I, I'm I'm a Bomb fan. Mm. Um, I have been using some of the native apps. I'm not sure where Mm. they... Because the the interesting thing about this article is um, people more clued in than me might have realised this, but I didn't realise that IBM owns the weather company. So that um, they are quite... A substantial uh, supplier of weather, not only to end users, but to corporations and uh, media lucrative. companies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if there's, if, if there's something that most people want to know, it's what the weather's doing. So um, I imagine that not everywhere has an organisation as fabulous as the bomb to rely on.
1: No, that's true. Uh, It is 7.15. You're listening to Bite Into It on RRR. Uh, We're going to hear a track now and we'll be back in a sec. If uh, if you work in technology, as a lot of us do, uh, looking around the room on any given day, you realise uh, it's a very white male kind of situation uh, and um, a lot of uh, organisations and indeed the state government um, have been trying to address that uh the inaugural diversity and inclusion um specialist consultant um how would you what do you what do you call yourself in the tea room uh
0: dni advisor
1: dni advisor uh abby burgess from Invato uh joins us in the studio now abby how are you
0: i'm good thank you very much for having me this evening
1: so why is diversity and inclusion uh, an issue in technology in, in Victoria or, or even more broadly in Australia?
0: Yeah, well, um, I suppose if we use Invado as an example, when, when we look at the numbers representing women, particularly across, um, across our organisation, we are underrepresented um, and we see that being a theme across a number of organisations um, in the tech space. And when I say gender representation, that's just one, um, one facet of diversity that we're addressing.
1: What um, what do you feel are some of the um, 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 pockets of the community that um, aren't being strongly represented in tech that have a, a great deal to offer? I mean, there's it's not just um I guess one of the, the features of inclusion and diversity is that you get to represent groups that mm-hmm. haven't had that opportunity. But it's also better for everybody else as well, um, mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. Are there groups that you're really keen to see represented at either Invato or more broadly speaking?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, from Invato's perspective, there are a number of key key areas or key themes that we're looking at, and beyond uh, gender diversity within the organisation, we've also got a strong focus on LGBTI, um, as well as mental health.
1: Mm. Uh, is that mental health is one that you don't hear come up that often Mm. Um, is that easy to address how how do you sort of recruit for for people who've had mental health issues mm. or, or in that sector?
0: Yeah, look, um, the recruitment aspect we're not so strong on at the moment. Um, the mental health piece was recently introduced as a part of our FY17, FY18 roadmap mm. um, around diversity and inclusion. But really what we're wanting to do in that space is raise awareness around workplace mental health mm. um, and start to address some of the stigma associated with mental health in the workplace.
1: I think if you crawl some of the Slack channels at some of the... Uh, in in Melbourne, at around eight PM every mm. night, you'd probably find a whole bunch of digital workers who have some uh, issues in that area there. But mm. um, it's great to great to hear that flagged. Um, what, what attracted you to this role in particular, and, and mm. why did you think Invato was was worth the time and effort?
0: Yeah, um, I was uh, prior to a focus on diversity inclusion. I was uh, working in the generalist HR space and um, working in that that sort of sector, you see a number of issues arise and, and I'm fortunate enough to work with uh, a lot of people that are comfortable raising their concerns and questions. and. Um d was a natural step for me, um, particularly being a, a woman. Um, other women in the industry feel comfortable coming to me with their concerns, particularly around underrepresentation representation um, in the development and engineering space. So I was really excited and, um, and privileged to be able to represent diversity and inclusion at Envato.
2: How common are diversity and inclusion roles in mm. the tech space?
0: I would say this is an emerging role, um, and it's it. Whilst in the tech space, I would say it's a lot more common. When you look to sectors beyond tech, I would say there's still a way to go in terms of dedicated diversity and inclusion efforts.
2: So, what I mean, apart from just having someone who's dedicated mm-hmm. to it, which you know it obviously changes the culture in and of itself, mm-hmm. what what. Are the advantages from a business perspective mm-hmm. for a, a company to say, "Oh, well, you know, you know, it, it's another, it's another salary. What, what, why are we paying it?"
0: Yeah. Um- if I use again Invado as an example, um, over the years we have had a number of individuals across the organisation um, having the the autonomy and, and freedom to pursue their passions beyond their their day to day role or responsibility within the organisation, and um, we we saw an opportunity uh, to formally support some of those. Um, those initiatives that they were focused on. So for example, um, Ruby on Rails, uh, there were a number of uh, guys within our business that would attend um, the Ruby camps and women in that area were really heavily underrepresented and And they basically were asking, asking themselves the question, what can we be doing in terms of addressing this? Um, and again, as, as an organisation, we felt that we could start to consolidate some of the work that was already being done at an individual and local level within our organisation to provide a little bit more of a sound framework and support to um, bring these initiatives together and, and make it a company-wide focus for us.
1: Interesting, um, pr- probably one of the most obvious measures of um, inclusion is uh, numbers. How many mm-hmm. bums on seats do we have? Mm-hmm. Um, there have been things raised in the past that that doesn't go deep enough and that we need to look at um, promotions, pay rates, mm-hmm. um, uh, a, ver- a variety of other measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you have a point of view on that? Um, it, it's quite easy to say we value these things. That's mm-hmm. the easiest thing to do is have the CEO stand up and say that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make it a, a practice that's that you know every head of every department or every boss or every manager mm-hmm. Uh, everyone in the organisation is looking at?
0: Yeah, look, I think the the quotas and targets question is an interesting one. Um, We have recently completed the WGEA submission, which is the Workplace Gender Equality Agency submission. And that provides us with an annual opportunity to look at our statistics across the organisation. So measure things like internal promotions and the number of uh, individuals that take parental leave and and things of that nature. Um, In terms of formal quotas or targets for us where we're more uh we're choosing more or less to focus on the inclusion piece at the moment and um, see if we can start to make some headway in terms of the experiences for people currently within our organization as opposed to setting concrete
3: Mm. concrete
0: targets at this stage um it's it has been a hot topic and um and one that can divide people in terms of conversations
2: Mm it's not just within the company that you're Mm. looking though uh tell us a bit about some of the work that you're doing outside in the community for example i understand that you're sponsoring code like a girl
0: yeah so that's a really uh exciting and recent um sponsorship or partnership opportunity opportunity that we've taken up with code like a girl um, we have over the past few years had a number of interactions with code like a girl and and the opportunity to sponsor them in a for, a more formal capacity seemed like a, a natural next step um, they're they're doing some wonderful work co-founders there ali and vanessa are really uh passionate and focused on helping um provide a framework or a support for young women wanting to enter the coding or an engineering space. So uh, we were very happy to be able to support that and work with them around um, further promotion of that.
2: So uh, in terms of the further promotion, Mm -hmm. then I mean, a lot of our listeners would be familiar with with Code Like a Girl, Mm -hmm. but what what sort of of events or Mm -hmm. partnerships are you you involved in?
0: Um, So at a a local level, we'll be providing a venue for Code Like a Girl to host a number of evening adult workshops. Um, In addition to that, Code Like a Girl will also be providing um, a number of workshops for women across our organisation focused on tech, the identification of themes and trends that are are appearing in terms of experiences for women in the industry and uh, working on a bit of a plan to support and help uh, develop and, and grow them moving forward. So we see that working two ways. One in us providing opportunities for Code Like a Girl to to continue with their adult workshops and things of that nature and also um, have an alternative voice, uh, come in and provide uh, opportunities for our women to learn, um, as well as uh, highlight to the organisation and externally some of the challenges uh, that that not only Envada are facing in terms of uh, gender diversity, but the broader tech community.
2: I guess there's, it's interesting because there's, prob- there's two ends of the problem, really. Mm-hmm. And one end is the, uh, for want of a better word, supply, you know, getting mm-hmm. uh, young women interested in tech as, as a career opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the other end, I, I imagine, is attrition whereby, mm-hmm. um, you know, you will, you will lose people. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what can you do at the beginning of that process Mm -hmm. to then um, help ensure that these women who are starting now continue and become senior leaders? And what can you do, excuse me for the double barrier question, Mm -hmm. but what can you do to make sure the women women that you've already got Mm -hmm. don't leave you?
0: Mm -hmm. Great question. I think... um Creating an inclusive environment is really critical to that. So, um, for women wanting to enter the the tech workforce, um, looking at some of the key considerations that, or being able to help answer some of the questions that they might have a really basic example there is um, strong and supportive parental leave so they come into an organization where they feel supported um, they can go away and and um, utilize parental leave and return um, and have a clear career plan in in place and be able to um, aim for those leadership positions Uh, we feel that uh, leadership and manager training around that to provide support not only for them uh, but the managers and those those leaders that are interacting with them is also a critical piece. Um, what was your second well, yeah,
2: question yeah, there? How to keep <laughs> them. You know, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was how to keep them but also, um, yeah, uh, how to, I, I, I guess, uh, I, I just wonder if there's if there's something that at, at the Code Like mm-hmm. a Girl end mm-hmm. um, that you can do to, you know, really forge change mm-hmm. within mm. these organisations or whether it's just a matter of flooding tech with really talented a, uh, a really talented diverse word co- workforce I'm gonna I'm gonna
1: throw it out there and say that maybe it's not even an organizational thing maybe uh, you may have picked up on um, automatic the company behind WordPress is actually shutting their massive office in San Francisco because mm. there's four people who mm-hmm. regularly use it and mm-hmm. everybody else is distributed around I was just thinking as you guys were chatting about do we just make workplaces more? family-friendly and more home-friendly and more kind of um, um, permeable to how we actually live? Mm -hmm. Do we need to be kind of having meetings in the office about diversity and inclusion? And Can Mm -hmm. it just be uh, organisations have to mould to the way people are?
2: I wonder – because I wonder how – I often wonder how family-friendly – sending like allowing people to work from home really is because oh. I, I think anyone who has a family knows that home can often be the most chaotic place I understand I understand I <laughs> <laughs> understand
0: it, it doesn't That's necessarily have, have to be at home though mm. so flexibility can be work from a coffee shop work yeah. from um, soccer practice after school absolutely yeah. so that is that is another area at I think particularly that the tech industry does quite well in, and that is providing um, a flexible workplace culture. Um, coming back to your your uh, question earlier around uh, what can we be doing to retain uh, female or, or women talent within the organisation – having conversations with them and asking them what is important to them and what they would like to see is a really great starting point for that. And again, part of our partnership with Code Like a Girl, we'll see a number of workshops focused on that, asking the questions, understanding what some of um, their challenges and hurdles are and and starting to um, forge a bit of a plan to break that down. There's no point in assuming or creating projects or initiatives that we think will work. Mm. We need to ask the question and we can do that in a number of ways, whether it's workshops, surveys, one-on-one conversations, Um, just providing women with the opportunity to actually share their thoughts and experiences is a great place to start. Do
1: you have uh, anything else lined up for the rest of the year that you're kind of um, working on that could be the next kind of code like a girl kind of um, initiative.
0: Or? Yeah, one thing that we're um, we're really excited about and, and have actually recently launched is a women's developer program, uh, apprentice program, I should say. So um, we know that. Uh, women within the tech space are are underrepresented and we don't necessarily want to be taking that talent from from other organizations. So we have created a program that uh, develops our own talent in-house. And that is um, bringing in a couple of women who have a genuine interest in uh, learning code, wanting to become developers. We have a permanent full-time dedicated mentor um, that will be working with them and training them up over the next six to 12 months until uh, a point in time in which they're fully-fledged junior developers and they can uh, continue working with Envato or or spread their Mm. wings and find other opportunities out there.
1: I'd love a developer if you have a spare one. That'd be (laughs) great. (laughs) Um, well, it looks like uh, looks like uh, here is one company culture that is um, pointed in the right direction. Um, thank you very much for making time to come in and have a chat to us and good luck with the initiatives. We, we hope they're all very successful.
0: Thank you very much. Now,
2: a lot of, uh, well, if you think back uh, to the earlier days of, of the internet when it was just starting to get mature, APIs were a big thing. There were, you know, Companies provided an API so that uh, third parties could dig into the fabulous tools that they provided and do cool stuff with their service. Uh, these days, not so much, and uh, the sort of the race to a wall one's garden has uh, has become ever more fierce. Um, one company, uh, which is dealing with the fact that these days, if you want access to a company's technology, then you have to pay for it, uh, is Timehop. Uh, they, they they're in the business of resurfacing uh, your your internet breadcrumbs, I guess, finding finding your memories uh, finding memories for you of what you've done on the internet. Uh, and uh, Warren Davies had a chat with Rick Webb, the COO of TimeHop, about some of these challenges. That's really going away. Like, you know, some companies haven't taken the full step of killing it
3: off. Like, you can still get things like Facebook and Google and Instagram. They still have, you know, public APIs and you can still do some stuff. But the restrictions have definitely gotten a lot stronger. And then other companies like Snapchat just haven't even bothered. You know what I mean? Like, there are these new companies that just don't play by the old open web rules yeah and so that's been interesting you know like we just ran a survey about what what platforms and services people want to see most in, in time hop and snapchat was number one but we can't do anything with an open api there anything right so you got to go do deals with these kinds of people and that's like a big difference that's a huge difference over i would say the last four or five years
1: I remember when we started to try and um, bring in messaging stuff to you know, other features, or to the web, or what have you, and looking at WhatsApp, and you just—it's just so hard to do it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Like the interoperability between these services is not what it used to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's like a whole wealth of companies that have been hit by that, like, and I think we're one of them. And I think companies like if this, then that, that like rely heavily on sort of like manipulating your own data through these public APIs. It's it's not the same as it used to be, you
3: know? Mm. So that's kind of like one big trend I would say that's going on with the company and in this stuff in general. Then the second one I would say is that like there was a period where like your social graph on these networks was more pure and it was less algorithmic. Right. So, you know, I think Tumblr is kind of the last one that is out there that's still Shows you all the content in the in a feed stream style in the order it was posted, versus according to some art, like o- obscure algorithm, right? Yeah. So that has like all these interesting like ramifications. Like when you go to Facebook now, you don't see the most recent things; you see these things that it's decided are most important, right? Yeah. And so any company that kind of you know, for good and bad, any company that's sort of like worked with these platforms. And had a lot of users and those users were sharing content. They had this like very viral effect going on. You know what I mean? So TimeHop used to grow just by leaps and bounds without doing anything. Like 20,000 users a month or more a day. I mean, 20,000 users a day just without any, you know, growth hacking or marketing or promotion just on the basis of this sheer number of people that were using it that were posting sharing out of it back on Facebook and Twitter and all their their users seeing this in like a chronological order. But all the platforms now have definitely tempered that sort of organic viral growth, right? And you know, there's good and bad about that. Like we were all getting like totally inundated with upworthy links and crazy shit like that. And it was really kind of exhausting for everyone. And I think some curation is probably in order, but for companies that like lived off of it, it's, it's a totally different world, right? Like, we still grow and we still get a couple thousand new users a day, but it's nothing like we used to mm. because you or I can see something in Time Hop and share it to Twitter, and maybe a couple people will see it. Like, even if you have, you know, have 11,000 followers on Twitter, like, there's no way more than a couple hundred would see something that I tweet out of app. That. So, that's like a big change in the way the web works that's happened in the last five years, too.
1: Yeah. Do you think, um, um, do you think it's kind of one end of the spectrum? Like there's this kind of content is really disposable and obsolete really quickly and TimeHop occupies the other end where we're like, we, we long for permanence and like, yeah, that was that was the year that was in 2012. And, um, you know, I, I've got a friend who will spend half an hour going back through all of the stuff around a piece of content that they found on TimeHop. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's kind of like conflicting forces there, right? Like since we started the
3: like, things like Snapchat appeared where content it was, like, just by definition ephemeral. It was never going to last, right? And that the web is has definitely taken a bit that way. You see a lot of people now that, like, curate their their Instagrams, right? They just did that archive functionality last week where you can archive certain photos, or mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk a while back about cleaning up everybody's Twitter, and everybody was deleting their old tweets. And that's kind of been one sort of, like, direction nostalgia on the web is going, this sort of direction towards ephemerality. But I do think at the same time, like, the nostalgia thing is being more recognized right like I remember when I invested in this company I just invested in it just pure play on nostalgia because I'm like a nostalgic dude and I didn't see there was a lot of nostalgia on the web but people are starting to realize they're like there is this older content there is some of it is worthwhile there's some of it's rich it's a really rich archive of stuff that nobody's doing stuff with and I think like there's more respect for nostalgia than there used to be, and that's why you're seeing, you know, like Facebook ripping us off with this on the stay feature, and everybody even you know, Snapchat instituting memories, Google trying to find different ways for you to look at your photos that isn't just the most recent. There is like a healthier respect for nostalgia going on, but there is also this new sort of like, you know, zeitgeist around ephemerality, and they're a little at odds with each other. But I think overall, people are
1: more aware nostalgia on the web and they're, they're kind of into it more than they used to be. Do you think, um, do you think, uh, I mean, one of my favorite services of, of all time has been Twitter just because it was quite simple. And I, I agree when it moved to the algorithm, that was um, very confusing and, and disappointing. But um, do, do you think simple services where you just do one thing really well is a thing of the past? Um, I think once you can download Videos or photos that you posted that were meant to be disposable—the whole thing changes. Like it just becomes, you know, it's like a Facebook play where we just do everything like a shopping center.
3: Yeah, I don't think simple services are a thing in the past. I think users love them, right? Like there's this giant world of these weird apps that you and I don't even know about that you can download from the App Store that do one thing, right? Mm. Like for you know, a trend I can think of off the top of my head is before. instagram sort of like co-opted it with there was like this whole like world of mosaic apps where you could pick four photos and make a nice mosaic you know what i mean I what like yeah. the whole world of like photo processing apps like Meitu is out there now and things like that but i think the economic environment has changed where like a those companies definitely don't get funded in the same way as they used to anymore so they're sort of like slowly becoming either like media properties or lifestyle businesses right like nobody's giving them 20 30 million dollars anymore and uh so that kind of has an impact and then b of course like the big platforms just co this stuff all the
1: time so you gotta have something that's kind of defensible and useful you know mm, mm. what's uh, uh one, one, one thing that um didn't come up i, I haven't been a time hopper either but i did um have a play with it over the past few days it'd be great to go back through your music listening and it, Maybe I haven't seen it because I didn't connect my Google up because that's a bit too scary. But um, is there a way that you can go back into your search history on YouTube, for example, or what you were watching five years ago? Or- yeah, this is a perfect example. Like We just ran a
3: survey for everyone saying, what, is, you know, what services do you want most? And Snapchat won, but after that, it was exactly what you're talking about. YouTube did very well. Spotify did very well. And they have APIs and some of that stuff we can do a little bit on. But it's not like the old days where those APIs just don't change and they're well documented or you can do anything on them. So we are working towards doing actually both of those, Spotify and YouTube are trying, but it's like you got to do deals with them, right? So you got to like, find somebody at the company that cares about this and the company has to be in a place where incremental growth versus giant new blue ocean growth is interesting and they've got to sort of like roll out the red carpet for you a little bit give you a stable api maybe work with you on it a little bit so it becomes like a much more biz dev intensive operation than a peer development operation you know what i mean
1: yeah is it is it because internet properties didn't make money like the you know in the second boom like it was just user growth and you know page views or or whatever but there was no money behind it and now the next generation of um internet businesses are just locking it down and doing it in an old school kind of texan oil kind of way what's happening there yeah i mean i think part of it is like there was this very open web zeitgeisty thing at the beginning and and a lot of companies had these public APIs, and they were just doing it to be good members of the community. You know what I mean? Mm. And they weren't making a lot of money off of it. And then uh, I think that that's sort of compounded with like like uh, public stock pressure. That sounds a little weird, but like let's take Foursquare and Twitter, right?
3: So like if you recall when Dick Costolo joined Twitter they really clamped down on that open API stuff and they, they bought Gnip and they started like actually selling data and they, they turned off a lot of the third party apps and things like that. And they really became very controlling of their API. Right. And like, it didn't really make a ton of sense to you or I, because there's money to be made there, but the money to be made there was confusing to the stock analysts and they were getting hammered by stock analysts about like, no, your money's in advertising. Why are you wasting your time on this stuff? And, like, by contrast, we had somebody like Foursquare that, like, wasn't publicly traded and, you know, didn't have this break, runaway crazy growth anymore and, like, it didn't have a bunch of, like, stock analysts looking at it. And they're like, wow, RPI is actually the most valuable thing in this company. There's a real company here. And, you know, they're worth, like, a good amount of money now and it's almost purely a data company around API stuff, right? Hmm. And so I think, like, there is definite value in this stuff, but, like, in the life cycle of a company, there's... Play times where they can do it easily and there's times where they can't. And in the old days, they just sort of pitched it as marketing. Like I would say 10 years ago, every startup was expected to have a public API. and they, they viewed it as a growth opportunity and a marketing opportunity and maybe a little bit of a recruiting opportunity and nobody really bothered them but once you go public...
1: So that was uh, a bit of a dive into nostalgia on the web and uh, it was interesting uh, chatting with Rick that um, it is just harder to get into stuff now and Interoperability was a valued thing um, for a long time, and now it kind of isn't. And what does that mean for us as as users?
2: Yeah, and I guess it means that there's a lot of uh, stuff. I mean, oh, oh, on the, you know, you, people say you know, you put something on the on the internet, it's there forever. Uh, on the other hand, you put something on the internet, it might not be there tomorrow. Mm. And I it it's interesting just to think about the the amount of uh, of you know dead services that uh, I was using. You know, mm. at, at not even five years ago. Yeah. Um. And also, what he's saying about how how you know it's just harder to get that interoperability. I mean, I, I I'm a big fan of this if this then that, but mm. um, it it does. I don't, I don't know if it's just my my sense of it, but it does seem to be now less useful than it was when I first. First started, I don't know if that's just my perception or whether that's actually them struggling with the, with the same questions. Mm. Well, a,
1: a lot of those do break. I still find it good. Like I, I started using it way back, and then it's still great now, and probably even easier. Um, there's just maybe better better community around it, and like a backlog of recipes and stuff like that. But that's how, how the web should be. If this than that, should be how the web works. And by default now, that's not how people are building it. Um, they're building it as a business. They're setting it up to control users, to not share them with other ones, like trying to get anything out of something like Facebook these days just as a, a link or something like that. Yeah, it's impossible. They don't want you to take stuff.
2: And it works for Facebook because they've got everyone. Mm. But uh, I still think that it must be must be a better option for for starting mm. up to say, oh no, we're open and that mm. and you know we will we can work with anyone because you know there's only there's only really one Facebook mm. and so uh, maybe they they probably own a couple of others, but you know <laughs> it's, Ho- it's, hopefully it
1: is the the final version. Just a few minutes left. Uh, we do have uh, a few things that um, caught our eye. Um, something weird going on in WA, Simon.
2: Uh, yes, the uh, the uh, sorry, uh, I'm just slightly thrown there. The uh, the ABC is reporting that uh, a council in Geraldton is microchipping its plants. Why would they do that? Uh, apparently, the plants are quite expensive. Uh, they're uh, grass trees, which can cost up to three hundred dollars each, and they're getting Not stolen grass, trees. No. Grass trees that it yeah. cost up to $300 each and they're getting stolen. Right. Um, and uh, they said uh, two grass trees uh, were recently stolen from a roundabout. Mm. Um, so the rangers have taken to installing microchips, much like the ones that you put in a dog or a cat, mm. uh, to track the plants if they're stolen. Mm. I'm a little bit confused because, as far as I understand it, they're not sort of GPS enabled or anything. You can't sort of pinpoint them. So if they're stolen, then I don't know how weird where, if they turn how up at the pound and, as well. Yeah, exactly. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, my understanding is microchipping a dog into a cat, you can find it and then you can go and check mm. the microchip. I guess if you do happen to f- find a grass tree for sale on the back of a truck, then uh, you, you could use this technology to track down whether it belonged to the council or not.
1: That is a a weird notion. Um, Another thing that uh, caught our eye um, NASA, um, the Kepler. Uh, planet Hunting Telescope um, has found 10 new planets uh, outside of our solar system that are likely to be the right size and temperature uh, to potentially have life and triple R subscribers on them. Um, after four years of searching, the Kepler Telescope has detected 49 planets in what's called the Goldilocks zone, which is, I guess, not too hot, not too cold, but just right, maybe... Um, zone. Um, seven of the ten newfound Earth sized planets um, circle stars that are just like our own. So, um, isn't it great when you throw a big telescope into space and it starts p- sort of spitting out Earth sized planets? Yeah, amazing. You're, you're excited. Do, do you like the idea that there could be lots of other people out there or lots of other things out there?
2: Oh, I, I imagine that somewhere out there in one of those Goldilocks zones, there is a planet almost exactly like Earth where there are people almost exactly like us talking mm. in a studio much like this and getting excited mm. for something that's almost exactly like the Community Cup, uh, which just we've got a minute or two before mm. uh, the end of the show. Mm. I, I, I just wanted to uh, get an update from you about uh, the bite into its role in the Community Cup.
1: We are, uh, as a team, looking pretty hot. Um, I... I Lid is off, maybe um, on a Wednesday night. Uh, I know we're chowing down on some pies. um, I think at uh, Record Paradise uh, in Brunswick tonight. But um, team's looking pretty good, and Bite has had a a role in it um, for many years now. Uh, I know Phil used to play, uh, George used to play. um, James Noble will eventually get out there and play. Um, So (laughs) we we do we do like our footy uh, on Bite into it and. Uh, it's just a great event. Um, it's a very Melbourne thing to do. Um, if you like football, if you like music, if you like radio, um, yeah, it's on at Vic Park um, this Sunday afternoon. So all those people on north side have been complaining for years that it's too far to go and it's too cold. Uh, you have no excuses.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.